Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, it is Fed Day. Bloomberg Radio and TV will have complete coverage this afternoon, and it's uh, it's all about the tone of the interest rate uh, environment going forward that we're going to be looking for from this uh, Federal Reserve Chairman. David Bianco, Chief Investment Officer, DWS Group, joins us. David, I guess, you know, the, the, the tapering is, is well, I guess, well discounted, well understood by the market. What are you looking for from Fed Chairman Powell this afternoon? Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's Fed Day, which is definitely an exciting day here at DWS and for all investment managers. What we're going to be listening to is just thoughts on, on inflation, of course, the transitory versus structural debate, but also importantly, what's the Fed going to do about it? You know, our view is that inflation will decelerate over the coming year from what has been very high levels. But even though inflation is decelerating, it's still very likely going to be above the Fed's target. And therefore, the Fed needs to start continuing to remove accommodation. We're going to hear about tapering today. Uh, the real question is, what's going to happen to overnight rates? Our view is there still will not be a hike in overnight rates until the fourth quarter of next year. But let's hear and by the way, this is, uh, this is a moment where we're going to get to hear from, from the Fed chair. And uh, after this, there's going to be a lot more. It's going to open the window to hearing whether we get the renomination from the president for Jay Powell or, or not. So it's, uh, it's one where we all want to hear the current chair's mind, thoughts, and uh, before we get into a little bit more of uh, you know, political considerations about the future leadership of the Fed. The Fed has nothing to do with the supply chain crisis or really even shipping um, issues. The costs that come from that aren't anything the Fed can control, but it does have a mandate for the labor market. And the labor shortage seems to be one of the things that people are pointing to more and more often, um, even beyond the chips and ships issue. So what do we expect to hear from the Fed on that? We expect the Fed to talk about all of these issues, and the Fed will rightly point out that there has been an inflationary shock from the supply side related to the pandemic supply chains and also a little labor scarcity that is getting better, but getting better slowly. At the same time, the Fed should acknowledge that there's been monetary effects occurring here, too. Cash in circulation has jumped tremendously since the pandemic, in part to fund the, the emergency fiscal policy response, and that was important. But cash in circulation, even household deposits, up a lot since the pandemic started. The Fed can't do anything and, and really shouldn't fight uh, supply-side inflation when it's, you know, when it's not something structural, but they need to acknowledge that there is a demand side, and part of this demand side, whether it be government spending uh, or even just households uh, being flush with cash, uh, the Fed does have something to do with that. Now, to keep all this cash kind of on, on ice and chilled rather than turning into hotter money, well, this is why you see short-term interest rates beginning to lift upward. We've got the two-year yield at about, it's gotten close to 50 basis points, three-year yields at 75 basis points. <laughs> the bond market seems to be very confident that the Fed's going to take actions to contain inflation. Um, and, and we believe that's going to play out. Now, let's watch and see what the, what, you know, what the leadership of the Fed is and, and what they say. 
Um, but there is still inflation risk out there, and we want to protect against those inflation risks. And our, our view is the best way to protect against inflation is simply to own the best businesses you can. Out of all these concerns about inflation, year-to-date after years of this trend being persistent, year-to-date growth stocks are outperforming in the S&P. Um, and, and, and we believe that it's better to own businesses that are uh, raising their productivity rather than raising their price. David, are you share the concern that is held by some that perhaps this Fed Reserve is falling behind, that the market's getting ahead of them, and even some other central banks out there? Well, not yet. I mean, tapering is probably going to be announced today, um, and that is uh, going to move at a little bit of a faster pace than most of us thought, say, six months, 12 months ago. Uh, The Fed will be talking about uh, how they're thinking about raising interest rates, you know, probably late next year. So, you know, they're using their communication tools well. Uh, the bond market, as I said, is beginning to move and do some, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, pulling back accommodation and raising the cost of capital. Uh, so the bond market's doing some work for the Fed right now. And, you know, this is a tough thing. The, the, the Fed is trying to wrestle with what parts of inflation are really uh, transitory and supply-side shocks that will fade, and they'd be wrong if they were aggressively going to fight, versus other things that might be more structural, like, you know, a lot of people have gone into retirement uh, since the pandemic, and, you know, there may be more labor um, difficulties in the future, and, you know, the, the trade activity, import activity, the uh, tariffs and so forth, these things are still, you know, a challenge to, uh, to, to, to keeping inflation low. Also, when there is an emergency and you've got low interest rates, one of the best things the Fed can do is to promise to keep interest rates low for a mm. long time. So they don't want to lose credibility either uh, on keeping rates low if they need to in an emergency. David, thanks so much for joining us. David Bianco there, Chief Investment Officer at DWS Group. This is Bloomberg. Now, I want to get out to Dr. Mary, uh, Dr. Anne-Marie Sastry, um, she joins us on the phone from Ann Arbor, Michigan. They have a school there, I believe. It's a place I love to go, especially around Thanksgiving, to watch Ohio State, the Buckeyes, beat the Wolverines. <laughs> oh, Although no. I have to say, it's really depressing every time that happens. She's the CEO of Amosite, and she's going to talk to us about people getting back to work. I'm sure, I, first of all, I'm, I'm joking a little bit with you about Ann Arbor. It's gorgeous. I absolutely love it there. Um I'm sure people want to go back to work uh, there, but it seems like here in New York and out in London and over in Berlin, nobody's coming back to work. What's happening? What's happening is that people are demanding greater flexibility. And uh, again, Paul and Matt, it's great to be with you this morning. And, and the stadium here in Ann Arbor is big enough to hold lovers and haters. So that's okay. <laughs> you guys can come and Everybody's help the local welcome. economy. You can help the local economy. Uh, Yeah, the the reality is that people are demanding flexible work because a lot of the notions that we had about how work needs to be done have been upended uh, by the pandemic, that people realized that, yes, the conduct of business was possible online, and that has led to greater degrees of digitalization, not only because it's more efficient for companies to deliver goods and services that way with with much of the logistics and most of the engineering design, et cetera, going on online, but also that people appreciate it. Uh, this, the stats are, are telling. 34% of employees say that they're more productive now than they were before the pandemic, and over half of executives say that average employee productivity has improved with online work. 
So, so the numbers bear it out. The numbers bear it out. And, you know, a lot of folks, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, Henry, are, are concerned about inflation, concerned about wage inflation. But again, a lot of folks, economists will say, don't be so worried about it. Yes, uh, nominal wages are going up, but people are becoming more productive. And so it's less of an issue in this economy. Do you think that's a longer term issue? I do. Uh, and when you look at the most valuable companies in the world and and what their models are, their models are fewer people uh, with incredible productivity generating great uh, high degrees of revenue per person. Um, if you look at the jobs available, uh, the BLS, Bureau of Labor Statistics, found that uh, May smashed every prior record. 9.2 million job openings are available in the country. Uh, but the economy hasn't ground to a halt. Instead, we have fewer people doing more of the work. And what that means is that uh, a higher degree of training is required in order to lure people back to the workforce and, and get people back working. But also, people are adapting to digitalization strategies, meaning that they, they are using skills that they didn't learn in college, and they need to be constantly upskilled. And when you look at the data there, again, they tell the story in a very clear way. Uh, the vast majority of employees demand flexibility in their work. And uh, what we see is that 87% of workers think that they will have to upskill in order to stay economically viable. So these changes, these disruptions, are changing the game for employers who find themselves needing to, to conduct more business uh, digitally mm. and for workers who need more skills. So I, you know what? I absolutely respect that workers want flexibility um, and that remote work can be uh, better for a lot of people. The problem is the technology just doesn't seem there yet for every company, right? So um, this morning, for example, I was trying to get in touch with a bunch of economists and then with a bunch of tech people and uh, all over Europe. They all seem to be out of the office. Then I had to try their cell phones, try and figure out their home phone number. I'm wondering if they forwarded um, you know, their calls. It just doesn't seem like the infrastructure is ready. SaaS growth has been enormous, as you know, and SaaS companies have, have kept the economy going. SaaS being um, software as a service. Correct, yes. And, and Amosite, my company, is also a SaaS business. We are in the, in the training space. And so we happen to know a little bit about this. Uh, we're, we're NASDAQ AMST. What we've discovered is, is, of course, that people don't want to fiddle or fool with three, four different platforms in order to engage. They want to be able to perform their work functions on one platform. They also want to be served materials uh, smartly. And if you think about it for a second, if you think about Spotify or you think about Netflix, nobody has to come to your house to show you how to use those apps, right? And so business apps need to become more user-friendly. The user experience needs to be streamlined. But in the interim, people will use the tools they have. Now, the companies that are going to be very successful are going to be the companies that provide those software as a service tools that, that reduce the friction of business, and the companies that adopt those tools quickly. Dr. Henry Sastry, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Henry Sastry, CEO of Amosite, on the phone from Ann Arbor, Michigan, home of the big house. Um, absolutely. And, uh, I absolutely love the big house. Now, I will is, say, is a game this year? Where is it? In Ann Arbor or Columbus? I do not. I assume it's in Ann Arbor because otherwise I'm going home for Thanksgiving. My brothers would have gotten me tickets at okay. the horseshoe. The big <laughs> house is loud and yeah. it's a lot of fun until, like I said, they lose. Then <laughs> everyone is super bummed out, which happens usually. Which yeah. happens. All right. Let's see if yeah. the, they can turn it around this year. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about what you can get from fixed income in the world of high yield. We have Brent Fink with us, global co-head of high yield at Aviva Investors. And I guess, um, you know, the question is, is the return worth the risk? Um, and I, and some people, a lot of people uh, have been answering yes lately. What do you think? Yeah, you know, high yield at 4% in historical context does not seem like a lot. But we're also in an extremely low default environment. The, the support that the economy got from the Federal Reserve last year has really eliminated a lot of the downside to high yield. So while yields from a long-term perspective look relatively low, there's also very few alternatives in other asset classes you can get that sort of income from. So we still think the asset class holds value for investors that are, are income-focused or, or looking for a steady stream of coupons going forward. All right, Brent, how far out on the risk curve are you guys going these days for returns? Because when I was in the market 4%, we would have kicked that down out of the room. Um, so if you're looking for a return, how far down on the curve are you guys going? Well, we play across the capital st structure, so we will go from triple B even down to triple C. Uh, we think there's some pockets of value right now. One of the most popular trades in the market today are rising stars. So these are the companies rated double B currently, but on their way back to triple B or investment grade rated. We think that this is a, a very popular trade. So some of the upside has been squeezed down already, but we do think that there's uh, a lot of momentum behind these rising stars that will continue for the next two years. So we think that's a, a particular area uh, of interest. We also are seeing an, an increase in LBO activity that will bring uh, a lot of triple C rated bonds to the market. We think you have to be very selective in this portion of, of the high yield market, but we do think there are some uh, interesting individual credit opportunities within that lower quality tier. What kind of economic cycle uh, assumptions do you have to make? Well, you know, right now you look at 2022 GDP consensus growth estimate at 4%, and, and that's actually a, a really healthy environment for high-yield companies. High-yield bonds typically do well when the economy is growing in positive territory, but not overly uh, hot. And that's the environment where you really get that restrictive or tightening Fed policy that can dampen down economic growth. So this is similar to the sweet spot for high-yield here, uh, this low but positive growth environment. Brent, in the new issue market, do you guys on the buy side have any leverage or are these, when I go to the covenant section of XYZ uh, widget manufacturer, it's basically just a couple of pages? Yeah, covenant quality has certainly deteriorated over the years. And you're right, the, the power kind of went to the issuers. But we have seen some evidence of, of discipline from investors right now. There's a few uh, new issues on the, on, on the docket right now that that have struggled from a, a covenant standpoint, but price where the, the investors and the issuers have not come to terms. Um, maybe there's some creative structuring or covenant agreements that can be met, but we are seeing some signs of discipline from the market. It's not uh, anything goes at this point. So when do we get uh, back to a world where high yield is paying out seven or eight or 10 or 12%. I mean, seeing 3 or 4% on high-yield coupon is just nuts. Yeah, 
it's kind of a misnomer to call it high yield when it's only 4%. Uh, really, I think... Unless inflation's at 5, because then you're getting 9, really, right? Yeah, well, you know, you could you could make the case the real yield on, on high yield right now is negative. Uh, I think for... for Yields to go back to seven to eight percent. We're really going to need to see an economic cycle or significantly higher interest rates. Right now, spreads are for credit spread is about three hundred basis points above Treasury. So, if you did see a, a meaningful increase in interest rates, you would see that carry through to credit as well. Now, for investors that are concerned about interest rate risk, high yield historically has had a negative correlation to, to interest rates. So, it is one asset class within fixed income that historically has been able to weather uh, a rising rate environment. Brett, what's the sector you guys like the most right now? Well, if you look at the pace of fundamental improvement, energy is growing the yep. fastest. We've had a significant recovery. Uh, we've also cleansed a lot of the, the worst players in the high-yield market through 2015 and early uh, during the pandemic. We saw a lot of defaults within the energy sector, I think the credit quality there is, is better than it was historically. It still offers a premium to the overall market. And given the pace of fundamental improvement, we do think that that is one sector that will see uh, a large amount of rising stars over the next two years. So that's one particular area of the market we find attractive today. All right, Brent, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Always love getting uh, your perspective on the high-yield market, as high as it can possibly be, I guess, at this point at 4%. Uh, again, like Matt saying, not kind of the old days, 7 8 9%. All right, Brent Fick, global co-head of the high-yield uh, biz at Aviva Investors, joining us on the phone from New York. And again, um, still thinks he sees some opportunity out there in a the high-yield space. Uh, credit spreads uh, remain pretty tight, but credit quality is surprisingly good given all the liquidity we've gotten from the Federal Reserve and from fiscal stimulus. So the credit quality has been pretty solid there. Uh, good getting his perspective on the high yield market. A little more coming up. This is Bloomberg. On these Fed days, I always need to know what am I supposed to look out for in the release? What am I supposed to focus in on the press conference? I'm not sure because it kind of changes kind of period to period. But Danielle DiMartino Booth, absolutely on top of that. And we're glad to have her here. Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist for Quill Intelligence. Danielle, thanks so much for, for taking the time on what I know is a busy day for you. What should I be looking out for from uh, Fed's release today in the commentary? Well, um, you know, you're seeing, first of all, you're seeing rents rise at the fastest pace since 2001 in the CPI. So we're no longer waiting to see the whites of the eyes of housing inflation manifest in the inflation data. It has passed tense. That's a sticky form of inflation. And we're obviously seeing that the port situation, shipping, freight, all of this is not going away anytime soon. Unraveling this supply chain disaster is going to take time. So I think investors are going to want to know, how are you planning if inflation continues to accelerate from here? How are you planning to do a hurry-up taper? What does your what what does what, what your plan be on the taper, such that you're going to be able to get to raising interest rates more quickly? And I think that 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 is rightly the first question that should be on investors' minds. You know, the labor issue seems to be even a bigger deal for a lot of companies than um, shipping and supplies. 
we had a story on deer that even after um, the company came back with $8,500 bonuses, a 10% raise now, 5% in three years, 5% in five years, even then the workers still said, no, we want more. Um, is this at some point going to become a concern for Jerome Powell? You know, this is uh, this is a huge issue, and worker empowerment is a big deal right now. Uh, you know, what is what, what's problematic for Jay Powell is that even though we saw a nice dead cat bounce in auto sales yesterday for the month of October, they're down from eighteen point five million, eighteen point three million in April to thirteen million in October. That's a quick slowdown. We're seeing with this Zillow business that all of a sudden, you know. That, that homes are not flying off shelves for any price. We're seeing the ability for Thank consumers goodness. <laughs> to, to, you know, to buy big-ticket items. They're really pushing back, and it's being led. If you look inside University of Michigan data, it's being led by the highest income earners, those who are, account for 60% of car sales, just to give you one example. So he, he, Powell knows he's tightening into a slowing economy, and I, I, he's probably betting that this worker empowerment movement is going to – subside at some point as the economy slows and it will but at the moment as you say it is very very difficult for uh, to be companies hiring or dealing with union negotiations i can imagine what the longshore uh, uh, renegotiation is going to be on in long beach and in los angeles come the end of june that could make things even i mean it, it could be a biblical union strike um, well, I wonder, how do they measure full employment? Because if we're not there now, um, with the worker shortages that we're seeing, with these huge wage increases that, um, that unions are allowed to demand, then what is full employment going to look like? It's really hard to say. I think that there is a lack of appreciation for the simple amount of money that companies have thrown into IT spending. And that means that the automation that we always knew was going to arrive has been accelerated. So there's a good chance that that we are already at full employment today and that there's going to be four million or some odd so four and a half million, four million jobs that just don't come back. They've been automated out of existence. We could be at full employment. We had millions retire early as well. So it it starts to become very problematic very fast. Danielle, um, in about 30 seconds, what's the risk that Federal, the Federal Reserve just is too late? It, it just gets passed by either by the market or by other central banks? I think that the Fed's already so far behind the curve. It's not even a discussion that okay. should be had. I think most Fed officials know it. And that's why we haven't heard boo out of Rich Clarita for so long. Interesting. All right. Danielle DiMartino, boo, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate it especially on Fed Day. Uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist at Quill Intelligence, former advisor at the Dallas Federal Reserve, uh, which again is another great reason why we love to talk to her specifically on these Fed Days. And she's also a Bloomberg Opinion uh, contributor. So very, very busy down there. And so mad at again today, I guess, as Danielle was suggesting, um, inflation, inflation, inflation is something that you know, I think investors are going to want to hear the the, the, the chairman's view on inflation and, and how the Fed's going to react. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, it will be interesting to see, especially what the Fed can do if we are headed into a slowing economy, you know, because um, the kind of inflation that we're seeing, it doesn't look like monetary policy is going to be able to to stop it. it it's a different there are different issues yes. that are the root. So. Uh, what can Powell do other than keep 
um, financial conditions yeah. uh, lax for longer. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.